My name is Alan, and this is my story. I spent most of my life feeling like God had overlooked me. As a child, I was subjected to physical, mental, and emotional, and sexual abuse. At home, I felt safest hiding in my closet. I had carved a hole in the door so I could see out to see when it was safe to leave. At school, I was bullied and abused by boys, girls, teachers, principals, and even bus drivers. At church, I felt unwelcomed, disliked, and alone. My oldest sister was very ill all her life, and she suffered constantly, and it took its toll on my family. When I was young, I found her drowning in the kiddie pool. And the first thought I had was, it's probably for the best. Now I ended up saving her in that moment, but that thought, it destroyed me. And from that moment, I set in motion a plan to end my life. The moment I was gonna end my life, the God who I thought abandoned me, put this thought into my head, speaking the words, I have something better planned for you. He saved me in that moment. Now, I wish that I could tell you that I gave my life to him at that time. But the abuse continued. God still felt so distant. And I got tired of waiting on his timing. So I took my life and direction away from God. And from there, the suicidal thoughts returned. Later, my wife-to-be introduced me to Gateway, and the messages here began to heal my heart. What happened next is I ended up serving people in Indonesia on a short-term mission trip. And so many people there were having visions and dreams of Jesus, and he was healing them from all kinds of things. And I just thought, they don't even know who he is, and yet he's healing them. How much more will he heal those that put their faith in him? So I finally gave that moment of my sister's drowning over to him. Then he healed my heart and never had another suicidal thought again. Years later, when my sister died at age 39, I was so angry with God. I argued with him saying, why did you let her suffer her entire life? It was then that God showed me something that changed my perspective. Because of her condition, she never lost her childlike innocence. Every time she saw me, even if I was so awful to her the time before, she would jump up arms wide open, smiling ear to ear, and nearly knocked me over with her hug. She did this until the day she died at 39. God revealed to me that despite her suffering, she was teaching us unconditional love. My whole life, in spite of the abuse and the pain that I had God wasn't overlooking me. 
He was giving me a daily example of how much he loves me. Now I still suffer from anxiety, anger, and even depression. But because I want to love more like my sister did, that unconditional love, especially toward my wife and daughters, I've joined Gateway's recovery group. And through this group, I've been blown away by the depths that he loves me and that he's coming after me. And that even though that I've strayed so far away, that he wants me to continue to let go of these hurts. I felt overlooked, but with God's help, I realized that I've already overcome so much. Well, happy Easter. Hey, can we thank Alan for sharing his story? Thank you so much, Alan. You know, there's something inside of us that longs to be significant. And there's something inside of us that also longs to hope. I feel God has placed that in the human spirit that we might search for him and find him. Because significance and hope we can find if we seek after God. Any of us, if we were just to pause, no matter how accomplished we are, if we are self-reflective even for a moment, we might begin to realize that 100 years from now, everything we've worked so hard will not be remembered. Maybe even 10 years from now. Think of the irrelevance of an iPod or a CD player. Kids, if you don't know what I'm talking about, ask your parents later. <laughs> but there is inside of us this longing for more, for significance and for hope. We hope there's meaning to our toil. We hope that love is something worth living and dying for. We hope that we're not being overlooked and forgotten. That we are special and have a purpose and long to be loved. Is there someone who out there sees us, cares about us, and who is with us through all of this. Well, Easter Sunday is a reminder that the answer to that is yes. In the name of love, God came to rescue us. That he lived a perfect life, that he taught with authority and did the miraculous and ultimately died on the cross, but also rose from the dead, and his name is Jesus. I want you to consider this morning how remarkable this story is, that the creator of the universe created you on purpose for a purpose, and that he creating you knows you better than anyone else, even knows you better than you know yourself. And we might feel overlooked and forgotten by this world, or even targeted by this angry world, oppressed by others, and yet... God says you matter to him. That's the story of Easter. Now I want to acknowledge that as I talk this morning about Jesus dying on the cross and rising from the dead, there are many of us here who are celebrating. That's why we're here today. But there are others of us that are here because we love our family that dragged us here. <laughs> and I want you to know if that's you, I'm so glad they did and that you let them. And I want you to know that when Tamara mentioned earlier that we are a come-as-you-are community, we mean that. This is a place where you can come no matter what you might believe, 
No matter what doubts you might have, no matter what struggles you might have, this is a safe place to discover who God really is. And what I want to do this morning is touch on the evidence we have that you do matter to God. The evidence that we have that this story is not some myth made up about a great teacher, but it's actually a real story that actually matters today. And it can change everything about your life, both now and into the future. We're starting a series today, and I'm really excited about it. I've never been a part of a church that did a series quite like this. Today, in the next three weeks, we're looking at moments when Jesus interacted with people after he had risen from the dead. Normally, you only hear that message on Easter, but we're going to do it for four weeks, four weeks of Easter. So if you only come for Easter, you've got three more weeks to come. (laughs) But in this series today, we're looking at how to overcome being overlooked. Next week, we're looking at how to overcome our doubts. Then we're looking at overcoming disappointment and overcoming failure. My hope is that you'll come throughout this series with an open heart and an open mind. See, some of us, when we think of this story of Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection from the dead, we we think it's just, it doesn't make any sense. That that people who have faith just are naive. That they just are are, are kind of connecting dots that shouldn't be connected. The chances of this happening are are just so remote. We think people of faith are kind of like Lloyd Christmas, like this. What are my chances? Not good. You mean not good like one out of a hundred? I'd say more like one out of a million. So you're telling me there's a chance. See, you don't have to be naive that there is actually evidence that can support our faith, that we move forward trusting God. It's not an understanding of intellectual facts, but it's actually a transformative reality that this is real, that Jesus is alive and can live within us and guide us along the way. I want to point out a few skeptical people who became believers, people much smarter than us, that if you have an open heart and open mind and you're here as a skeptic, I want to challenge you to read some of these books that I'm about to mention. I'll start with C.S. Lewis. Maybe you've heard of him. He was an Oxford professor, an atheist, who was challenged by other scholars who believed to actually look into the historical reality of Jesus' death and resurrection. And as a result, he came to faith and described himself as the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. And he went on to write a book called Mere Christianity. Maybe you know him from the Chronicles of Narnia. Or, or maybe you've heard of Francis Collins, a, an evolutionary biologist who worked for the head of, who was the head of the Human Genome Project. He actually found faith in Jesus while decoding human DNA and wrote a book called The Language of God. Or maybe you've heard of Simon Greenleaf, an atheist lawyer from the 1800s who literally wrote the book on the rules of legal evidence. When challenged by some of his students to use that same strategy to look at the historical 
nature of the story of Jesus, he ended up coming to faith. By the way, Simon Greenleaf looks like another follower of Jesus you might be more familiar with. <laughs> Bono there. Or maybe you've heard of Lee Strobel. We had Lee Strobel speak here at Gateway a while back. He was a Yale-trained attorney whose wife came to faith and started trying to get him to come to church. And he didn't want to go to church so badly that he tried to go out and disprove Christianity. That and the fact that he was an avowed atheist. And eventually, in the midst of his determination to prove Christianity to be false, he found it to be overwhelmingly true and wrote a book called The Case for Christ. And that's a scene from the movie called The Case for Christ. Another is Sir Lionel Lacou. He wrote a book called The Question Answered, Did Jesus Rise? An Indian man turned British trial lawyer who won more cases than anyone in modern history. When he took the time to examine the evidence, he wrote this. I say unequivocally that the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. If a professor and a scientist and even attorneys can come to faith in Christ, then we have a great chance, don't we? But actually, these incredibly intelligent people had an open mind to actually study, to explore the possibility. I want to encourage you, go to gatewaychurch.com slash exploring dash faith. If you are a person of faith and you want to understand more how you can communicate how real this is, or if you're someone who's skeptical, spend some time exploring your faith. Now, this story is so common that sometimes it can become unremarkable. In the midst of being familiar, we forget how remarkable it really is. Maybe you heard the story of Jesus' death and resurrection when you were in Sunday school. I heard a story this week of a kid in Sunday school, and the teacher asked the kids, now what did Jesus do on Easter Sunday? And the kids were quiet. None of them wanted to be wrong, so he gives them a clue. It starts with the letter R, and one of the kids, recycle. <laughs> Close, sort of, right? But it's amazing because this story has been retold and retold. It's the greatest story ever told. I mean, how many of our superheroes finally become worthy after dying on behalf of others? My wife and I just watched all the Thor movies this last week. And Thor was unworthy of his little hammer, the meow meow, whatever it's called, <laughs> until he was willing to sacrifice his life, and then he was worthy. Iron Man, Spider-Man, Harry Potter, Neo, all of them literally just ripped off the story of Jesus. The hero who becomes a hero when they're finally willing to make the sacrifice. This story has been told so many times that the familiarity of it can numb us to the beauty of the story. I would think about it. The creator of the universe decided to walk among us. And he taught with authority and he did the miraculous and then ultimately things went terribly wrong. The disciples couldn't understand when Jesus was betrayed and falsely accused and arrested and ultimately crucified on the cross, they took off. The Savior, the one that was supposed to bring down the tyranny around them to be the Messiah, 
was suddenly crucified on a cross like a common criminal. What must it have been like for those early followers of Jesus on the Saturday after Good Friday? The one they believed in was now gone, buried in a tomb. It was on the third day that Jesus rose from the dead. That he faced on that cross all of the evil of humanity, all of our sin and wickedness. He absorbed it all and it killed him. But he overcame sin. He overcame death. He is alive. This story changed the world. The church has gathered for 2,000 years on the Lord's Day, the day, Sunday, when he rose from the dead. Time began again with Jesus. So many lives have been changed that you are in this place because someone has told you that he's alive. And so what I want you to consider for a moment is this is not just a story that's been shared. There's literally thousands of years before Jesus that prophecies were written about the Messiah to come. There were 60 signs of what the Messiah would be like. And one of them was written by David. And I wanted to read this one to us because it is a beautiful description of actually what happened on Good Friday when Jesus was on the cross. A thousand years before Jesus, King David wrote these words in Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, it is melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. A thousand years before the Messiah was to come, David wrote that when the Messiah comes, that the families of the nations will turn to him and bow before him. See, the world may overlook you and me, but God did not overlook us. He came for us. And we see a thousand years before, he willingly subjected himself to the cross. We see that the Messiah was going to be pierced by the authorities, the executioners in his hands and feet. The eyewitnesses say that what is described in Psalm 22 is what happened. The bones were on display as he was hanging from that cross. The Roman soldiers rolled dice to see who could get the king's cloak that King Herod had mockingly put on Jesus. And then John, an eyewitness, said that Jesus cried out these words from the psalm, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, anyone standing there in that moment would have heard those words and been remembered of that psalm. And if they had not realized it before then, it would be in that moment that they realized Jesus is quoting the messianic psalm. Jesus, everything that is in that psalm is happening right now. I mentioned 
Lee Strobel, in his book, Case for Christ, one of the things that helped convince him that Jesus truly did die on the cross and truly did rise from the dead was a conversation he had with a cardiologist named Dr. Alexander Methrel. See, Dr. Methrel described that Jesus did not die of crucifixion. He died of heart failure. See, when your heart fails, a clear pericardial fluid builds up in the sac around your heart. And the Roman soldiers broke the legs of both criminals on either side of Jesus, wanting to make sure that they could not push themselves up in order to breathe so that they might suffocate and die before dark. But as they came to Jesus, who was, they realized he was already dead. So to make sure, they, they took a sword and stabbed him in the heart. John 19. One of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The water was the pericardial fluid mixed with blood, confirming that Jesus had died of heart failure. Jesus died of a broken heart. Now, how could a first century fisherman, John, have confirmed what modern medicine now describes as a heart attack? How could David, a thousand years before Jesus, predict what would happen as described by eyewitnesses? Even writing these words in Psalm 22, my heart has turned to wax and has melted within me. David also said in Psalm 16, for you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your holy one to rot in the grave. See, David actually was buried and did rot in the grave. But he was talking of the Messiah, the one who would die but come back. What's remarkable is as Jesus walked among us after the crucifixion, after he was arisen from the dead, 500 eyewitnesses saw him walking around. And many of these eyewitnesses told the story. That's what we read in the New Testament. I've had conversations with people who said, well, I want to read people describing Jesus' death and resurrection who don't believe in Jesus. The problem with that is, if you were an eyewitness to his death and resurrection, you end up believing in Jesus. But there is a, a historian writing to a Roman governor a hundred years after Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. And, and he writes about what happened as if everybody already knows this story. Listen to what he writes. And his name is Justin Martyr. That Jesus performed miracles, you may easily satisfy yourself from the Acts of Pontius Pilate. He's referring to a, a book, the Acts of Pontius Pilate. But the words, they pierced my hands and feet, refer to the nails which were fixed in Jesus' hand and feet on the cross. And after he was crucified, his executioners cast lots for his garments and divided them among themselves. That these things happen, you may learn from the acts which were recorded under Pontius Pilate. In other words, if you want to know the story of Jesus, Justin Martyr is saying to this governor, just check the public records. It's all right there. Notice he did not point out some conspiracy. He talked of Jesus dying, being executed. And eyewitnesses, we know from other accounts, saw him alive. 60 signposts that God wrote about the Messiah to come, fulfilled in Jesus. But here's the thing about evidence. It doesn't matter how much evidence there is, if you have a closed mind, it will never be enough. 
But if you have an open mind, you will be amazed at how God reveals himself. Listen to this beautiful passage from Jeremiah 29. God said, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. See, here's the catch. God does not force his way into our lives. That actually we experience the purpose that God has for us only when we seek after him. He does not force us. He gives us the freedom to choose whether or not we will trust him and go his ways. And in the midst of this, when we say yes, when we seek him, he does reveal himself. I've referenced this book before. It's a, it's a great one. It's called The Great Good Thing. It's by Andrew Clavin, who's a Hollywood screenwriter and novelist. And he shares of his journey growing up a secular Jewish kid and growing up to eventually find faith in his 50s. He says this, If you believe, the evidence is all around you. If you don't believe, no evidence can be enough. Do you have an open mind? See, some of us are here, and, and we actually would call ourselves a Christian, but, but we live as if Jesus didn't die on the cross or rise from the dead. It, it's a religious term we use to describe ourselves. Uh, perhaps we even believe with our head, but we've never allowed those beliefs to transform our heart, that we might trust him and follow him, live according to his ways. Now, there's this other interesting proof of Jesus being alive after the crucifixion. And it's an odd one. But do you know who the first people were that saw Jesus alive? Women. Now this is significant. See, in those days, rabbis did not teach women. They weren't allowed to learn. But Jesus was different. There were all sorts of women following after him, learning from him. And he would teach them See, in those days, women were oppressed. And some of you are thinking, what do you mean, in those days? <laughs> right? We live in a world that's backwards, where people are oppressed because of their gender, because of what they look like. People are targeted for no thing other than what they look like and who they are. And in those days, it was even worse for women. Not only were they oppressed, but they were treated like property, and among the Pharisees, the religious elite who had convinced Jesus, or Pilate, to crucify Jesus, they had this morning prayer. This is a true thing they would pray in the morning. Blessed are you, O God, who has not made me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Not very nice, is it? But it wasn't just the Jewish people. It was everybody in those days. Jesus came to change things, to turn things upside down. There was actually a group of rabbis called the bruised and bleeding rabbis. And they were called that because in order to avoid lust, they would look down everywhere they went so as not to see a woman. But as a result, they would bang into walls and buildings. And that's why they were called the bruised and bleeding rabbis. True story. Suddenly, they just assumed it's all the women's fault, right? It's like a Christian camp that has rules to not listen to rock music or it might lead to premarital dancing. <laughs> but Jesus turned everything upside down. Not only was he inviting women to be a part of his movement, but he actually looked out for other outcasts, the sinners and even the lepers, considered unclean, 
ostracized, kept away from society, and yet Jesus reached out to touch the untouchable. Listen to this in Matthew 8. A man with leprosy came and knelt before Jesus and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. Jesus healed him. He didn't have to touch him, but he did so to make a statement. See, Jesus came into the world to reverse the ways we treat the outcast, the overlooked, the unseen. He came to heal the disease of the heart, the disease that keeps us separated, aware of our differences. But Paul, who also saw the risen Jesus, would say after the resurrection in a letter to the church of Galatia, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Jesus came to pay for all the sin and evil that separates us, to show us a new way. The women at the tomb was further evidence that he was alive. See, women not only had no rights in those days, but the rabbis refused to let them learn. And if three women saw a murderer, the person would not face charges because a woman's testimony was seen as worthless. They were kept in poverty. Jesus did everything different. We see in the scriptures that there were women like Mary and Martha, Mary Magdalene, Joanna and Salome who were not only following him, they were invited into this movement. There was this moment where Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to him as he taught, and her sister Martha got upset and even said, Mary, why aren't you in here in the kitchen where the the rest of us women are and where you belong? And Jesus actually said to Martha, Mary has chosen something better, and I won't take that away from her. Jesus validated women's higher education when the world system opposed it. And here, the first witnesses that Jesus was no longer dead were women. The same women who did not run away as the male disciples did, but they were there watching him die and even preparing his body and placing him in the tomb. They were the first to see him alive. This is so remarkable. I mean, it'd be like, Someone today saying, it has to be true because three politicians said it. (laughs) See, you'd never make this up. You'd never make up women being the hero eyewitnesses. The disciples who wrote their eyewitness accounts could have absolutely put themselves back into the story as the hero. But they tell it like it is. I ran away. I was scared. And I was not there when Jesus rose from the dead. Listen to Matthew tell the story in chapter 28. Early on Sunday morning, as the new day was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went out to visit the tomb. Suddenly there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, rolled aside the stone and sat on it. His face shone like lightning and his clothing was as white as snow. The guards shook with fear when they saw him and they fell into a dead faint. Then the angel spoke to the women, don't be afraid, he said. I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead, just as he said would happen. 
The women ran quickly from the tomb. They were very frightened, but also filled with great joy. And they rushed to give the disciples the angel's message. And as they went, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they ran to him, grasped his feet, and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go tell my brothers to leave for Galilee, and they will see me there. Jesus appeared to the women and told them, go tell the guys to meet me in Galilee. Now, Galilee was a 10-day journey, and guys don't like to be told we're wrong. And so the guys never went to Galilee. They didn't believe the women until they saw Jesus themselves. Do you feel overlooked, unseen, God sees you and sees value in you. These women, these outcasts of society were the first to discover Jesus is alive. Now it's fascinating in the four different accounts, these eyewitnesses actually mention different women. Matthew says Mary and Mary got to the tomb and saw Jesus. Mark said it was Mary, Mary and Salome. Luke said it was Mary, Mary, Joanna and some other women. And John says it's Mary Magdalene but implies there are others there. Now, some of you might be saying, aha, a contradiction. But actually, attorneys would tell you that this is actually more authentic testimony. If it was all just the same, then there would be potential evidence of collusion. But in this case, instead of contradicting, these accounts actually harmonize that all can be true. Each were telling it from their vantage point. J. Warner Wallace, a cold case homicide detective, was married to a woman that also wanted him to go to church. And he didn't want to go to church, and so he decided to read the New Testament to prove to her it's not true. And when he came across these four different accounts of the women who saw Jesus, he became convinced. This was authentic testimony. He writes this, The gospel authors and the early church certainly had the opportunity to change the descriptions of the women to make sure they matched, but they refused to do so. As a result, we can have even more confidence in the reliability of these accounts. Jesus is alive. I I could spend hours, I won't, I could spend hours giving you more evidence. It won't matter unless your heart is open. And my invitation to you today is you might have all the evidence you already need to acknowledge you need what Jesus did on the cross to count for you that you want him to forgive you, to lead you, that you are committing your life to follow him and his ways. Perhaps you're here and you believe with your head, but maybe what you sense is God's asking you to trust him with your heart. Or maybe you're here celebrating today and you're sensing that God wants you to take another step of faith, that there are other ways that he wants you to serve our city that you have yet to step out and do. I believe that each one of us in this room has a next step, that God is revealing his love for you and his desire to draw you closer to himself. 